Well, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7, so it would be a great idea to grab a Bible and turn to 2 Samuel 7. Here's a bit of patronizing advice, by the way. There's a contents page at the beginning of the Bible, so if you're ever not sure where somewhere is, don't be ashamed to look for it in the contents page. There are some minor prophets that I can only ever really find with the help of a contents page. 2 Samuel 7. While you're doing that, um, just a reminder of a few things we mentioned this morning. Um, if you're new, head to the website, fill, uh, click on the word hello, and fill out a hello card. We'd love to hear a bit more about you. Some contact details that we can use to stay in touch with you and uh, keep you updated on what's going on in the life of the church. Um, and there's lots going on in the life of the church. One thing I've forgotten to include on that slide, of course, is the members meeting this coming Thursday. If you're a member, please come. Uh, we're having the meeting in here. There is going to be provision for those who aren't able to come. Perhaps you're going to be the, the spouse on childcare, for example, on Thursday evening, and you have to stay home. There'll be a link available on request to join on Zoom. But if you can come, please come. Be here in the room with us. This is a critical meeting in the life of our church on Thursday. Do, if you can, make it a priority. And then you'll see on that slide some reminders about events coming up, dates for your diary, Saturday 12th, Samuel live in the living room. Um, Samuel, one of our own here, is going to be playing some of his music and talking about God's work in his life. Get a ticket for that. Bring a friend. These are all designed particularly for those who we'd love to um, come to know the Lord Jesus for themselves. Uh, Saturday 19th of November, the big quiz, again designed for those who might not be used to coming to church. It'll be in here. There'll be a short message as part of that about how we find the great answers to our questions in the Bible. And then uh, if you've got a friend who's not sure about the intellectual credibility of Christianity, what better event than Sunday 27th of November in the evening, Professor Richard Buggs, um, evolutionary biologist, a real expert, um, talking about the question, did Darwin disprove God? So stick that in your diary too. And think about who you might invite um, to come along to that. Uh, one more. We didn't talk about this this morning, but um, a little while ago we had a presentation about a summer trip, a mission trip to Peru in summer 2023. It proves to be a really exciting trip. Um, now, details for that trip have been sent out, uh, which means that if you haven't got those uh, details in an email, you're not on the mailing list. If you want to be on the mailing list, if you want information about that and you haven't received that email, come find me afterwards and I'll take a, an email address for you and get you added to that. Um, email address. I hope that makes sense. Uh, good. Okay, enough notices. Time to turn to God's Word. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of the pivotal chapters, not only in 2 Samuel, but in the whole of the Bible. Uh, it's really part of the spine, the backbone of the Bible storyline. Uh, David, remember, has brought the ark into Jerusalem. That's where we were last time in 2 Samuel. He's brought the ark in as a representation of the presence of God among his people. Remember David dancing with all of his might before the Lord. So, so happy was he that the ark was coming in. And with the ark having arrived, now David turns his thoughts to where the ark ought to live. Hence, uh, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 1. Now, when the king, that is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, 
would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you, that is Nathan, shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, 
so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. We won't read chapter 8, but as chapter 8 begins, we see the Lord beginning to fulfill this promise of establishing David's kingdom. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks, and a God who makes wonderful, mind-blowing promises about your work. Uh, Help us to believe this promise and help us to respond as David did in humility and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you pick up a a newspaper or open your BBC News app or your news source of choice at any given week, uh, chances are the headlines are going to be something to do with powers and thrones and rule. Uh, So, for example, recently we've read stories in the paper about President Xi Jinping consolidating power over China. I was seeing headlines this week about how uh, Mr. Trump is apparently planning a run for power over America again. Putin is still pointing his guns and firing them at Ukraine. The world is caught up as it ever was in a clash of powers and kingdoms. And not just nation states, but big corporations too. The news this week has also been filled with the takeover of the kingdom of Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk has sacked the board and apparently half the workforce overnight as he consolidates his own power. This is the history of the world, isn't it? It can be told through the rise and the fall of kingdoms, Uh, going back through the British Empire, which at one point so covered the globe that people could say that the sun never sets on it. Uh, School children study study the rise and the fall of the Romans, and before them, the Greeks, and back through the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Empires rise, empires flourish, and then empires fall, and they become museum pieces. School children are taken to see their ruins in the British Museum. They all eventually become an exhibit, a footnote in the story of the world. Every kingdom, that is, according to 2 Samuel 7, bar one. Now, when 2 Samuel 7 was written, certainly when the words were first spoken to David here through Nathan, the Davidic kingdom had barely got going. Israel was a small, insignificant nation in world terms, and David himself a relative unknown beyond Israel's borders. But this is the moment here in 2 Samuel 7 when it becomes clear to David and to us that this small, relatively unknown kingdom would change the world forever. This is the moment when we realize that the kingdom that matters Even today, it isn't the kingdom that dominates the world's press, but it's the kingdom that is only the only kingdom in the world guaranteed by God to last forever. So come with me and see, first of all here, the greatness of the kingdom. We're going to be spending most of our time here, so don't panic when we get to the end of point one. The greatness of the kingdom. This is verses 1 through to 17. But chapter 7, as it opens, notice the king is settled there in his royal house, and we're told that rest has come to the people of Israel. Now, this is a big moment there in verse 1, given Israel's problems with local enemies throughout Judges and 1 Samuel. Remember the Philistines? The Philistines have been a plague on God's people for years, a stubborn and destructive fungus that no one until David had managed to uproot. 
and they're finally gone. They won't be back. And so David's mind naturally, along with the arrival of the ark, turns to the ark. He starts to wonder, is it right that I'm living here in royal luxury and the ark is the ark of the Lord of hosts? The symbol of God's holy presence is kept in a tent. Now, we're assuming it's a nice tent. It's not just a sort of something you get from blacks or millets, but still it's a tent. And the implication here is that David is thinking about doing something about it, maybe building a house fit for the ark of the Lord. And the prophet Nathan, noticed there in verse 3, thinks this is a terrific idea, but the Lord says, no. Now, this happens, doesn't it, sometimes? Uh, even to Christians today, we have what we think is a good idea. We can see how it would serve the gospel and surely honor the Lord. It, it just seems to make sense from every angle. It's the perfect plan, and for whatever reason, God says no. Uh, the door closes, a, a job ends, or a relationship ends, or a project falls flat. Now, those moments can be incredibly painful, can't they? But they can also teach us really important lessons. And God has really important lessons here for David. For example, the Lord wants David to learn that the big work is the Lord's work. You see that down there in verses 8 and 9? And the Lord gives David a, a rehearsal of his recent history, reminding him that it's been God's work from the beginning. It's always been about what God does, more than what David does. So verse 8, I took you, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been, you wherever you, been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. See, David played his part, but, but who really slew Goliath? Who really drove out the Philistines? Who really recovered the ark? It was the Lord. Of course, Christians know this to be true about them as well. It's always been the Lord, hasn't it, in your life? Who is it that chose the Christian before time began? Who was it really who got the gospel into your ears? Who opened your eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus? Who forgave your sin? Who is it that's promised and guaranteed and secured you eternal life? It's always been the Lord. True of churches too, isn't it? Fitting for us to think about that as we move away from our 150th uh, anniversary, 150 years, what is it we're celebrating? 150 years of our own greatness, our own courage, our pioneering spirit, our faithfulness, every great thing we've done for the Lord? No. A celebration of all that he's done for us and in us. And the reason to remind David of this, it seems, is, is so that the, day, the Lord can convince him that just as it's always been the Lord, so it always will be. What's going to matter in David's future won't be the great projects that David comes up with for the Lord, but the great things that God does for him. And again, isn't that true of us? You think of the new Christian, they're brimming with energy and enthusiasm, and they've got uh, an ideas, they've got a long list of the great things they're going to do for God, and we want to encourage that. There's something great about that. It's so much better than apathy or the kind of inertia that might set in over time. But we want them to know, don't we? Just as conversion was God's work, just as he's led them all the way so far, it will continue to be about the Lord's work in their life too. The great triumphs of their life will be God's. And of course, the same is true for a church like ours, isn't it? What do we long to see over the next 150 years? Is it that God's finished now and it's over to us? Of course not. 
The great hope for the future of this church is the Lord and his work. And this, by the way, is why we want to pray, isn't it? This is why we want to take prayer seriously as a church family. Because we need the Lord to work. This is why we pray as families. We pray as friends in prayer pairs or prayer triplets. We pray in our small groups. We join together every other Thursday and pray at our church prayer gathering. We'll pray together before the church meeting on Thursday. Why? Because we need the Lord. It's his work that matters in our future. As someone has said, when we rely on man, we get what man can do. When we rely on the Lord, we get what God can do. And what can God do? Amazing things. Category-shattering things. And that really is what he wants to show David here, isn't it? Isn't that the other lesson that, da- that the Lord's got for David? That it's not just that God's work is the work that matters, but that God's work and God's plan is so much bigger than David has realized so far. In verses 9b through to verse 17 here, God blows David's mind. David, here's what I'm going to do for you. Verse 11, have a look, verse 11. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to make you a house. It's a a play on words that seems to work in both the English and the Hebrew. The, The house God is going to build for David isn't a palace. It's a dynasty. I think... um. Uh, House of Plantagenet, if you're big on British history, or York, or the House of Tudor. But unlike those houses, which you read your history books, they rose, and then they flourished, and then they fell, this house, God's house, because it's God's house, will rise and rise and rise and rise forever. Did you hear that word forever coming up over and over again as we read through chapter 7? See that uh, through verse 12 to 16. Notice that emphasis on how long it will last. See that verse 12? God says in verse 12, he's going to do it through David's offspring. I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. He will build a a house for the ark, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it won't be because David's descendants deserve it. It won't be on the basis of their goodness. Notice that in verse 14. Some of them, many of David's descendants, this long line that flows from David will need to be disciplined by the Lord. But unlike Saul, God will never take his love away from David's line. Verse 15. My steadfast love will not Depart from him as I took it from Saul. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's an extraordinary guarantee, isn't it? It's a guarantee only God could ever make. We're familiar with the idea of guarantees. So, for example, if you uh, decide to splash out on a premium cast iron Denby casserole dish, They say that it comes with a lifetime guarantee. Now, whose lifetime it is, I've got no idea. Um, But that's the claim, right? Well, here in 2 Samuel 7 is God's everlasting, eternity-long guarantee. And no other kingdom on earth has this. 
It doesn't matter how powerful a kingdom seems to be or how global a brand becomes. No other nation, no organization, no individual has God's everlasting promise like this. No kingdom has this promise but God's. All through David. And what a precious promise this has been to Christians throughout the ages. Now, precious, uh, of course, to those who lived under David's rule. I mean, can you imagine the excitement as they heard what God had promised to their king? Your little insignificant kingdom is going to outlast all the others. Forget those superpowers. It's going to be David's line that continues. And imagine how that excitement would have increased as they lived through the days of chapter 8, as they saw David win victory after victory and his throne and power being established more and more under God. But then fast forward in your minds, fast forward to the time of the exile. I think how precious this promise would have been to them. A few hundred years now after this promise was first made, Israel are now, remember, slaves. They've seen their temple destroyed. They've seen the monarchy dissolved after some frankly terrible kings. Now, where's the hope for God's people? The same as it's ever been in God's everlasting guarantee. And then you keep fast, fast forward. You think of the people now living in Jerusalem in the first century AD. They've read 2 Samuel 7. They know all about the promise of David's offspring. And now they start to hear the stories of a son of David who's acting with divine power setting captives free, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. And then put yourself in the crowd at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and you hear the apostle Peter preaching, and he's telling you that the son of David, the crucified one, has risen from the dead and ascended to an everlasting throne and proved it by the outpouring of his spirit. God is establishing the promised kingdom. He's keeping his promise. And then you think of a Christian in London in 2022. A Christian who reads the news stories dominated by the big kingdoms of the world, belonging to a church uh, in the West, at least, uh, a mocked minority. But God is keeping his promise. The son of David is sitting on heaven's throne. The Lord Jesus is sitting on the throne. And God is bringing all things into subjection under him. God is keeping his promise. Isn't it precious to us? And how we need to hear it and believe it. We can see the other kingdoms, can't we? That's the point. You can see uh, Elon Musk at Twitter HQ carrying his sink. Did you see that? We can see Rishi Sunak at number 10. We can see Biden and Trump campaign campaigning, competing for the Oval Office. We can see the stories of Putin raining missiles on Ukraine. We can't see the Lord Jesus on his throne. No media outlet is covering his reign. But God has promised Christ's kingdom will stand when every other falls. You know, they said that the sun never set on the British Empire, but of course it did in the end, didn't it? And one day the sun is going to set on Amazon and Tesla and China and Russia and America and the East and the West. And one day the sun will set on every other company and every other kingdom. And on that day, the world will bow willingly or not before the everlasting King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. And David sees something of the, the every person, the global nature of this, I think. Did you notice in verse 19 as we read it in his response, he says, this is instruction 
for mankind. In other words, this isn't just relevant for Israel. This isn't just relevant for the ancient Near East at one point in time. This is relevant for everybody. This is for everybody. This is for presidents like Biden and Xi Jinping, for Bezos and Musk. It's for you and me. Everybody is heading towards an appointment with the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I wonder, have you realized that? Have you seen that the future belongs to King Jesus? You're wondering why bother with a, a Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago? Because the world is headed to his throne room. Which means that the only way to be on the right side of history is to be on the right side of him and to bow to him as king and trust in him as savior. Well, David is astonished by this vision of the future. And his reaction is going to help us to respond as well. So two lessons from his reaction. These are much more brief. The greatness of the Lord. This teaches us the greatness of the Lord. Verses 18 to 22. Uh, you might be able to remember the last time you saw something breathtaking. Um, I've tried to go on and on about um, a couple of months in Australia. Thank you for letting me go during my sabbatical. But I had a few moments like that. It's a, a stunning country. Um, taking a, a helicopter ride over the 12 Apostles Rock Formation. That was pretty breathtaking. Um, maybe you've visited one of the wonders of the world or you've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you've stared at the mighty ocean or you've, you've watched a, a documentary about it and even that was enough to make you gasp. Or you've gone outside in a giant thunderstorm. How does it make you feel? Doesn't it make you feel small? And that seems to be how David feels as he hears about God's plan for the future. Verse 18, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? Verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. It sounds, by the way, familiar, doesn't it, to 1 Samuel 2 and Hannah's prayer. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. They know that God's work in history proclaims his greatness. I wonder whether we realize that too. Uh, humanity has a bad habit uh, of making itself the hero. Uh, back in uh, July of this year, President Biden announced the release of the first images from the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope. It was a, a stunning glimpse of the enormity of space. And Biden said, amongst other things, this telescope embodies how America leads the world. Now, I'm not picking on Biden. I think any other politician might have said something similar if they'd made that kind of advance. But it does seem to miss the big point, doesn't it? When Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon, we said that it was a giant leap for mankind, which was true. But again, not really the big lesson to take. The heavens declare the glory of God. So when I stand and I stare into space, the logical feeling shouldn't be that I'm great, but that God is. And the same is true, of course, of the gospel. We're not the heroes of this story. God is. And the gospel doesn't teach me self-esteem. It teaches me God-esteem. 
The lesson of Jesus' death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to an everlasting throne, isn't that I'm great, but that he is. God is the hero. Christ is his champion. And the right response, therefore, to God's plan is to praise him for his greatness. That's what the gospel says. And we see this all over the Bible. Would you keep a finger in 2 Samuel 7 and flick with me to Ephesians chapter 1? Whenever Paul outlines the gospel, he can't help but come back to the glory and greatness of God. Paul outlines the the sheer scale of God's gospel plan. It's so much bigger than we realize. So how, for example, verse 4 of Ephesians 1, how it began before creation, before the foundation of the world, and how it would stretch to the end of time and beyond. And then glance down to verse 10, how the whole of history was, was and is headed for the rule and the reign of Christ. There in verse 10, God is establishing him as king. God's plan for the fullness of time is to keep his promise, to unite all things in him, all things under him, that Christ would be king of all things for all time. And as we see this plan laid out here in Ephesians 1, what is the lesson we're supposed to learn? What does it teach us? Well, it's there in the refrain. Can you see it there in verse 6? The praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, the praise of his glory. Verse 14, the praise of his glory. God's plan in Christ in this everlasting kingdom is to proclaim to us the glory of God, the glory of his power, the glory of his wisdom and his amazing grace to sinners. That is the, the, the lesson of history, it's the lesson of your biography. And when we, when we see that, like David, we'll say, oh, Lord God, there is none like you. And then one more response, and then we're done. And that is thirdly, the greatness of belonging to the Lord, verses 23 to 29. Well, having reflected on the greatness of God, David marvels at the greatness of belonging to him. See that in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, who is like your people, Israel? This isn't a boast. He's not saying that Israel are great. He's marveling at the sheer privilege of belonging to this everlasting kingdom. If you're a Christian, do you realize how privileged you are? We talk a lot about privilege these days, don't we? White privilege, private school privilege, financial privilege, whatever it is. But the greatest privilege of all is to belong to the one kingdom that will stand forever. And the poorest, most despised person within this kingdom of the Lord Jesus is infinitely more privileged than the wealthiest, most celebrated person outside it. And what has a Christian done to deserve that kind of privilege? We'll see how David expresses it there in verse 23. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? Who has this privilege? Those God has chosen out of his grace. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that out of all the people in your work, or on your street, that God would choose of all people you to belong to his kingdom. Us, in all of our sinfulness, all of our waywardness, he chose us. Isn't that amazing? So privileged and so secure. Look at verse 24. 
you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. Verse 29, with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And we're living in very interesting times. Everything's very uncertain, very unstable. We've gone through a string of prime ministers and changes of policy. War in Europe is driving up prices. We're in a cost of living crisis. And everybody around us is looking for some stability in the midst of the chaos, and the Christian already has it. We can face everything with peace because we belong to the one kingdom that can't be shaken. We've found everlasting security. Now, there's a, a hymn we sometimes sing which puts it like this. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the promise is given. More happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Those Christians who are blessed enough to have gone already to glory to be with the Lord might be more happy not living in a world full of sin and suffering, but they're no more secure than you if you belong to the Lord Jesus. So as you look through the news this week, you see kingdoms on the rise and you see kingdoms on the slide. Remember, they will all disappear in the end, every single one, eventually a museum exhibit, a footnote at the bottom of history's pages. And when that story is over, one kingdom will remain, the son of David, the Lord Jesus, on an everlasting throne. And our response on that day will be something like David's, oh Lord God, there is none like you.